Multiple world record holder and international gold medal para swimmer Brock Whiston is taking her sport to new heights. 22-year-old Brock was born with hemiplegia, although this was not actually diagnosed till she was 17. Hemiplegia causes weakness down one side of her body, but she never let this get her down and indeed proved a talented swimmer amongst non-disabled competitors when she was younger. When she became aware that she was eligible for para swimming, she tore up the record books in her breakthrough years of 2018 and 19. Brock is an incredible sporting talent and a wonderful young lady too. Not only is she training hard with her eyes firmly set on success at the Summer Paralympics next year in Tokyo, but she spends much of her time giving back, teaching children with additional needs to swim and going into schools to inspire the next generation to be the best possible version of themselves. I for one will be cheering Brock on next year as I'm sure she's destined for glory. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is Your London Legacy. Before we meet this week's wonderful guest, here's a little something for you. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. Well, today takes me to a part of town. We're just outside London, actually. It's a part of town we've not come to all that often on your London Legacy. But we are in, in Dagenham, I believe. Is that correct, Brock? Yeah. Yeah. So we're at the Beckentree Heath Leisure Centre. I got yeah. that, Have I got that right? Yeah, that's yeah. the home of where I am. The home yeah. of where we are. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Brock Whiston. Is Thank it Whiston? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Like I say, on every single interview, I always check the correct pronunciation of the guest because I always get them horribly wrong. So if you want, it's Brock Whiston. Yeah, that's we, correct. We were saying before we went live on, on um, the recording that Brock is a very unusual name. It's not one I'd come across before. And you're just explaining to me that it was a name because your parents didn't know if you were going to be a boy or a girl. or Yeah, and mum always said that if I was going to be a boy, she would choose the name. And if I was a girl, dad was going to choose the name. And he liked my mum's maiden name, so... Dad picked Brock. And so. the maiden name was Brock. was Brock. Yeah. So that's going to be carried forward, you know, into the future. That's nice. Yeah, I like yeah. it. It's nice to be have my mum's side of the family on me as well. It's it's nice for that purpose. also nice because I don't know anybody else who's called Brock. And I don't know if you've ever come across another Brock. No, it's unique and different. <laughs> so it is, it it's is nice. unique. Well, you're a unique person. Yeah. So um, in, in many respects. So we're going to touch on that today because... So Brock is a, a para, what do you call yourself, a para-swimmer? Yeah, a para-swimmer, para-athlete. Para-athlete. Yeah. And not only a para-athlete and a para-swimmer, but a world record holder, gold medalist in multiple disciplines. And um, we're going to dig deep into that uh, throughout the course of this conversation, because I know you're very, we are saying before, you're quite humble about what you've achieved, and you take it quite, I want to say with a pinch of salt, but you you don't sort of go around you haven't got a big head let's put it that way with what you've achieved this year yeah I suppose I swim because I enjoy it and I think a lot of people when I before I went to worlds and I got the world records everyone was like oh you're gonna do amazing I was like I want to but I put the work in it's not like I woke up and I just knew I was gonna dive in the pool and do world records and pbs like there was a lot of hard work that went in behind it so when I came back everyone was like oh how do you feel I was like well, I feel proud of myself because I worked hard. I was like 
But technically, it's just like someone working hard for their GCSE and then passing it. I, I said to everybody, I'm the same. I don't want to be treated differently. I'm the same person. I worked hard to where, to where I am today. It wasn't just luck. It was hard work and commitment. So, yeah. Sure. That's a wonderful approach to have to, to this and, and to life in general. So, so that people can understand, we're talking para um, sports, para swimming. What is people think of ability and disability and, and what is para swimming? I mean, what, what is the nature of your disability? Okay, so para swimming has a wide variety of classifications ranging from S1 to S10 for physical. And S1 means like very disabled, like very limited movements, possibly most likely no arms, no legs. So just like core and maybe little stumps. And then S10 is least disabled. So looking at people with like a club foot or a hand missing or some fingers. Then you have S11 to S13, which is visually impaired athletes. And this can be from complete, completely blind to tunnel vision. And then S14 is learning difficulties. Um, I'm an S8, which means two limbs of my body are affected, but I also raise people with one limb affected so like an arm missing or a leg missing so yeah i'm an s8 so quite able still yeah so what what is part of your anatomy shall we say is the part that is most affected um, so i have something called hemiplegia mm -hmm. which means the right side of my brain is missing and I don't have as much control of the left side of so my hang on, body. The right, you, say, you said that uh, uh, quick as a flash. The right side of your brain is missing. Yeah. So I have part of my right side of my brain missing. Uh-huh. So my left side doesn't function properly because I don't have the connectors to link what I want my left side to do to right. the brain because it's not there. Okay. So that means that um, I don't have any feeling in my hand or foot. And when I close my eyes, I can only see just below my elbow. And then I don't know that I have a when hand. When you close your eyes, you can only... I can only picture just below my elbow. So if everyone else closes their eyes, they know their hand where their hand is still. Right, yes. When I'm doing I, that now as we talk, yeah. Come on, carry I, on, I'm still doing it. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. When I close my eyes, I uh -huh. can only see my elbow and just below my elbow. That's amazing. You, I mean, even... When you open your eyes, you can you can see them as you, I can your, your see vision it, but is. I have no, I don't know what you got. Doing. No, it's no perception of where, yeah. where where it is. So my dad's very silly sometimes, and he'll tap me, and my mum goes, "Why are you tapping her?" He's like to get her attention, and my mum's like, "Well, she can't feel you, can she?" And he forgets. So yeah, I have no feeling in my hand at I, all. And is this is something you you were born with? Yeah, so I was yeah. born with it, but I didn't get diagnosed until very late on. And the doctors kept telling my mum I was lazy and I'd get in the bath and I wouldn't know it was hot until I'd get out and I was burnt. Oh, wow. Or I'd put my right leg in yeah. and I'd notice. Uh -huh. Or I'd go to get things out the microwave and I'd touch the plate with my left hand and then it was when I touched the plate with my right hand that I was like, ouch. So, yeah, it got quite dangerous. I bet it did, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get diagnosed, so they just told me. So why were they lazy? lazy? What's the, where does the lazy bit come in? Because when I was a baby, I only crawled with my right side of my body. Didn't use my left side at all. And when I played, I only played with my right hand. Well, babies aren't lazy. They yeah. just they do what comes naturally to yeah. them. That's, that's a weird thing to say. Yeah, but because I was my mum and dad's only child, they'd never experienced normality, as uh -huh. they say. So they weren't sure. They just went by professional advice that I was lazy. 
So yeah. So did you get a lot of stick from them? You know, were they pushing you to? Oh yeah, like work harder. Yeah, my mom, like some days I'd be like, "Mom, I can't walk today," and she'd be like, "Get on with it. Stop being lazy." But I'm really glad because I know as an only child to my mum and dad that if they'd known about my disability, I would have been that child that parents did everything for. Mm. Like my mum would have literally done everything and anything for me. Mm. And I think that's sometimes where disabilities get mixed up. Just because you've got a disability doesn't mean you're not able to do things. You just do everything a different way. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so when was the diagnosis? What what age were you? Um, sixteen, seventeen. Yeah. So really, really so late. that late. Yeah. So you were having going through all your sort of formative and teenage years with all the hormones and all that sort of stuff, and all the nonsense of school and friendships, and h- how did that affect you growing up as a kid? Because if people are calling you lazy, or the suggestion is that you're lazy, I mean, what what are, what are your school teachers saying? So at school, I found school very very difficult. Mm. Um. I was good at like maths, everything else I was hopeless at. I couldn't, could letters together just confused me. And um, I was really lucky though, there was an ex swimming coach. She worked in the office and she became my mentor. And she was one of the only people that believed in me. And she was like always supporting me. But yeah, in school, I didn't get any extra help. I remember in PE, they were like, you can swim. You can do some things, why can't you jump? And I was like, I don't know. I haven't been, like I'd not been diagnosed, so I didn't know why I couldn't run. I didn't know. But why were I they were your jump. teachers aware that you had no sensation down? You know, in, in your no, in your because left leg. because when we went to the hospital and everything, they just told my parents that I was lazy. They'd never done any tests. Why would they? Why are they going to believe a child over? But you know the tests. I'm, I'm being very basic here. You know when you go to hospital and they I don't know they stick a pin or they tap your knee to check your reflexes and all that. Presumably you didn't have the the regular. So I had re- the reflexes. Right. Because that's not like everybody has it. Okay. But I didn't have any sensation. When they scratched the back no, of your I foot and had see nothing. if you. Yeah, I had nothing. And they thought that was laziness. Yeah, they just kept telling my mum I was lazy. Or when they finally thought maybe she's not lazy, maybe there is something wrong, they didn't know what. So they just kept passing me from doctor to doctor to doctor for uh-huh. probably about three, four years. Right. That's ridiculous. So you so you struggled with some of the academic subjects at school. Yeah. And that was because also, as you say, part of your brain is not yeah. missing or not functioning properly. Yeah. So that had an adverse effect. But did that cause you to get stressed out at school? Or Yeah, so I remember, especially at college, college was where it really affected me because obviously it's more advanced learning. When did you go to college? Uh, straight after school, so when I was 15, 16. Okay. Yeah. And I wanted to study accounts because I loved maths. And I remember it was very wordy in accounts. And I thought, why would you be words in accounts? But (laughs) I didn't really look into it enough. I just thought accounts, I picked it. And I remember one day in class, I was like, miss, I'm really struggling. She gave me a book and she said, go home and read this. And that was the day that it really hit me that maybe everyone else would go home and would be able to read it and understand it. I just remember opening the page of the book and I was like, I don't know where to start. I was like, that's when it really sunk in. And even now, that's one of the most fixed moments that I remember that reading was and still is a massive part for me and a really difficult struggle. Mm. But presumably you'd, you'd had to have reading material at school beforehand or, you'd, I don't know, newspapers or comics or whatever you know, yeah. you'd been, had at home. I was quite crafty, I'd say. You hid it. Yeah, because... I never got told. I found ways to deal with it. So 
I'd use pictures or I'd be like to my friend because I was quite lucky I sat next to my friends in class what's the answer and then I, I, I think that's when like PE for example I was really good at PE because mm-hmm. you could do swimming you could do personal survival and you could do fitness so I got full marks on the like practical came to the exam and I didn't have a clue what to do I remember sitting there going maybe I should have asked for that little bit of extra help but I wanted to be independent and I got told all my life that I was lazy. So why are you going to ask for help when people already think you're lazy? So you're playing up to the expectation of your your, your um, the teachers, aren't you, really? Yeah. They say you're lazy. Well, maybe I am lazy. And when you got your results back from your tests and your exams and things, and presumably you didn't get the results no. that they expected from you. No. What did they say? You hadn't revised hard enough, I'm guessing. They were just like, you stressed out. I was like, I didn't stress out. I couldn't. I didn't know the like. I didn't know how to answer. I didn't know what to answer. I just yeah. So you actually went right through school yeah. with this issue, and it was never addressed. No, nope. and you never had any support, nope. either physically or educationally or emotionally throughout the whole of your upbringing at school. No, that's a real tough gig. And I'm saying that with some degree of uh, knowledge on the matter. My wife, being a special needs teacher, she'd be aghast. <laughs> She yeah. would actually, I, mean, I know, bless her, she'd have, picked, she'd have picked up an issue. I think it makes me become more independent, though. I think, mm. like, sometimes, like, now, especially I work with schools a lot, yeah. like, some teaching, and they're like, oh, this child has additional support in class. And I'm like, why? And they're like, oh, he struggles a bit. But, yeah, he does struggle, but I think sometimes too much support is given and not enough independence is given to make mistakes and learn how to change the way you are. I agree, but I often wonder why Why do some people like you can overcome these hardships? I mean, as a very young girl, overcome these hardships and now with some degree of maturity look back and say, you know, it's good to struggle maybe a little bit and have to grow your independence. How can some people deal with that and some people just completely collapse and can't cope at all? What, what is it, do you think, in someone's makeup? that? Do you think that's the parenting, for example, or do you think it's just innate in that person? So as a child, my mum got cancer when I was eight years old. In the same year, my nan died. Right. Um, the year after, my granddad died. And the year after that, my nephew died. Wow. I so- mean, so many people just would have crashed and burned at that point in time wouldn't they I suppose but you've always got to look that there's someone that's worse off than you like my friend won't mind me saying this but my friend Ellie Chalice she had meningitis when she was 18 months old so she only has like above her elbows and above her knees so she has no hands and I look at her and I think if she can do everything then why can't I like there's always someone worse off than you totally agree. and if you always sit and think oh why did that happen to me then you're never going to go forward you need to look at i'm lucky i've got what i have there's people out there that don't have what i have yeah i i I should say i've interviewed some amazing people on the podcast Uh, i can see you're no exception Uh, there's there's, there's two people come to mind there's a, a beautiful lady called heidi herkers who absolutely normal life fell down in a, in a home for just four steps in a home and broke her spine at her neck and became completely paralyzed from the neck down oh wow and is com- you know com- was born completely 100 percent not so that what a change in her life and she's got the same outlook on life as you totally she's just check her out she smiles every single day she's such an upbeat person and another guy i interviewed called uh, david apps who was um a journalist and he was out um, in one of the war zones, I forget, immediately now. And he got caught up in, in an explosion, the bomb. And again, was made, you know, paraplegic. But 
such positive people and it always amazes me how people such as yourself can be so positive has such a wonderful outlook on life thank you uh, and it's just it's just incredible I'm, I'm fascinated by the mentality and humbled by it quite frankly so good for you thank you i don't think until you get put in that situation you know how to deal with it like if when i was younger people were like oh like treating me different and getting diagnosed when i was younger my mum and dad would have babied me as i said so I would never be in this position swimming. I probably would be like at home. They'd be like, oh, you don't have to go to work. You're different. You can rest. Because mm-hmm. one of my things is I tire 70% quicker than everybody else, like the average person. You what? Do you seven? Tire. Tire. Get tired right. uh, 70% quicker than the average person. So afternoon naps are a big thing for me. And like sleeping a lot are a big thing for me. So I can imagine that if I had got diagnosed younger... I probably wouldn't have done full days at school. My mum and dad would have said, right, she can do half a day and then she can come home and nap. Ah, right. So I think definitely... So so before you were diagnosed, were you coming home from school and going straight to bed having a lay down? Yeah. What did your parents think of that? Lazy lazy, lazy girl? Like I'd sleep like 12, 13 hours How could a young girl say, when I was a young kid, I was up and out and running around and playing, yeah. Yeah. That sort of approach. 12, 13 hours a night, I'd sleep straight through. Oh my God, that would be nice. For your blessing. Lovely. You know, and you still do. You still have to sleep long hours. Yeah, yeah I love, yeah. like, have to sleep. So at the weekend, I had a competition between the heats and the finals. I have to find somewhere to sleep for about an hour and a half. Wow. Yeah. So when, at what point did you get into sport and swimming? How old were you? Um, so my mum used to be a swimmer. She held, like, British records in 200 oh, fly. Excellent. So my mum was a very, very good swimmer. And she told me at, as three, at three years old, I had to go and learn to swim. So I went to the swimming club. She learned to swim at, had swim lessons. And she said, once you can swim, that's it. You can give up. I did my first competition at six. It was only like a little fun gala. And I was like, this is kind of cool. At six years old, I was like, yeah. With a 10-year-old, I was like, going to beat you. I thought it was all amazing. You got a little bag of sweets if you won. So I was like, oh. And then I decided straight from there to get into competitive swimming. Uh-huh. So competitive swimming was straight away for me, pretty much from a young age. So and then. But when you through. were paddling around, and I don't know, with your mum and dad in the pool, and did they not notice that you had a problem on the, on one side? Yep. So um, I had this coach called Kevin Yardley. He was incredible, and he'd always be like, "Why can't you kick with fins? Why can't you kick your leg?" And I'm like, "I don't know." I'm just doing what I can do. And he was like, but your leg's not moving. And when I put fins on, it was more noticeable because I'd drop more in the water. It was the weight water. of the fin would push it yeah. yeah. And um, he was like, well, you'll swim and then your hand will like curl up in a ball, like claw. And he'd be like, you're not feeling the water, are you? I'd be like, I've never felt the water. Like, So he would get in the pool with me and try and do like sculling drills to like try and get me to feel the water. So yeah, he was a massive, massive influence in my swimming. And then we went to a competition once and a member of the British para swimming team came up to me and was like, have you ever thought of being classified as a para swimmer? I was like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm an athlete like every other person in that pool. I'm mm. able-bodied. Mm. And he was like, I've spoken to your coach and he's explained about everything. He's like, I think you need to go to the doctor and find out what is wrong with you. I walked into the doctor after years and years and years of being passed about. I walked into this private doctor and he was like, have you got cerebral palsy? Mm-hmm. And me and my mum looked at each other and laughed and we were like, 
no I've come just to find out why I have got wrong because my shoulder dislocates and this and that mm. and it was like well if you haven't got cerebral palsy you've got something very similar and then I had all these tests done and that's when I got diagnosed with hemiplegia so from there that opened loads of different avenues because obviously competing against AB swimmers when you're meant to be a power athlete is pretty challenging so then I got selected for the British team as like an academy athlete and that's where the para swimming really started. What age was that? Oh, 17, yeah, 18, so mm. yeah. Just going back to that doctor and the range of tests that you had to establish you had this hemiplegia, what sort of test, was it just a simple test, like a blood test? Or, um, or scans and things that established it, brain scans, what was it? I had a brain scan and then loads of just like random things, like stick your hand out, move your fingers, like simple things that you wouldn't even Simple think, things that could uh, have been done. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a brain scan and then like, move your leg, move your hand. Like silly little tests that you could sit doing in the chair now. That me and, when I walked out, me and my mum were like, it's taken all these years. That's why I'm just sitting here gobsmacked. For someone to... All these things that could have been done, basic tests, not even expensive tests that oh, could no. have been done by someone... You should have spotted it. I don't have a go at the NHS or everything because they're, they're wonderful. And I've had wonderful treatment and support from them. And that's many millions of people. But it does strike me. It's very odd. Yeah, we went, to, picked it up. we went to a private doctor because my mum had been fed up for me telling her that I can't feel my hand, can't do this, can't do that. And mum and dad had had enough. So they were like, we're paying to go and see this private doctor. Yeah. Paid. Walked out and my mum was like, how do you feel? I was like... What do you mean, how do I feel? I was like, for 16, 17 years, you've been telling me I'm being lazy and now a doctor's finally told me there's something wrong. I was like, you need to owe me 17 years of apologies. She was like, I'm not going to lie, I do feel a bit bad. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, was there a feeling, or like a sense of, oh, thank God, I've got a diagnosis and I can understand what's what's going on with me? Yeah, it was definitely a massive sense of relief. I mean, walking out, knowing what is wrong with you how to move forward because mm. that is the main thing like there's no point looking back at the past what's done is done that's not gonna fix me like if i'd been diagnosed earlier they weren't going to be able to like repair me so definitely it was about right i know what it is now let's go home do some research and learn about like things i can get involved in like people i can go and see people i can go and talk to to like experience what they've experienced to learn about how they cope with it and yeah, definitely it was a relief of like, finally. Mm. Um, were there, I mean, were there lots of, I don't know, the hemiplegia, is there lots of other people who've got us? There's quite a few actually. Um, so there is a charity that's set up for it, but um, it's closely linked to cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. So there's something called cerebral palsy sport. And I remember um, someone told me, oh, because you've got hemiplegia, you can go to a cerebral palsy event. And I remember walking onto poolside, never been to a, cerebral palsy competition before I was so shocked by the amount of people that have cerebral palsy hemiplegia all those conditions that are linked to cerebral palsy and I just remember walking out on that poolside going I belong somewhere this is somewhere where I belong and no one looked at you any different you were that athlete you were the same as everybody else and I remember looking at the officials and I was like there was about two or three that didn't have cerebral palsy or hemiplegia. And I was like, you're the abnormal ones now. And hmm. it was like, yeah, this is nice. This is like a family, a place where you belong. And all different ages, all different abilities. It was just nice hmm. to go there and share your experiences, talk to people, compete, have fun. 
Yeah, it was a really wonderful experience. Yeah, it's wonderful. So you said that you got after you got the diagnosis, you then got picked up to join the was it the para team. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that develop from there? How did you become um, a serious swimmer from that point? So I originally got picked for the academy team, which meant I went to a training camp in Manchester, learnt more about nutrition because as an athlete, nutrition is very important, and learnt more about like gym based work because obviously. At the moment, I used like at that time I used to do a lot of just swimming up and down. Um, then I went to um, nationals and I competed really, really well. PBs, per, like personal bests, and um, my times were quick enough to get selected for the World Paris si- Series in um, Berlin. Never really swam abroad before without my parents being there, and there was 24 athletes, I believe, and six members of staff, and we flew to Italy for a training camp and then went to Berlin. I remember being so nervous, not having any family, and um, my dad's friend is German. He came to visit, and he was in the gallery, and I dived in, and I did 100-meter breaststroke, and I got my first ever world record Wow! in front of my dad's best friend. Wow, and which category was this? SB8, this is, S- this is in the SB8. SB8. So you, you were been in that category ever since you got the um, diagnosis? I was originally a 10, but that was only nationally classified. Um, nationally classified so and then the classification system changed to okay. like modern day it moved right. it changes every couple of years so you got your first world record at what age how old were you this year so 22 this, this, yeah this was in berlin this year yeah wow 22 i got my first world record but didn't have any parents there just had my dad's oh, friend no. So that was quite a surreal experience that I actually got to share with somebody. But did you know your dad's friend? We just said oh, I'd heard about yeah. him and like they'd been friends for like years and years. Oh, and he years. must have been so chuffed. Yeah. Par- and the parents equally must have been equally gutted not to have been there to, yeah. to be with you as well. Yeah. I mean, did you have? Do they have any inkling you had a chance of doing something wonderful like that? I think deep down every parent has a hope that their child can perform well, but anything can happen like parents can influence and support but at the end of the day it's down to the athlete you've got to be a if determined the, individual. if the athlete doesn't want to do it then there's no point you might as well give up and yeah. go home but i just wondered if there was an expectation that you were going to get a, a world record in your first sort of major event oh no like my mum is like swim because you enjoy it as soon as you stop enjoying it please stop she was like that moment it it's not enjoyable it's not worth doing anymore sure but to get a world record you've got to have a hugely competitive side to you as well as the enjoyment factor oh yeah definitely to... i mean waking up at five before five o'clock every morning to be here for half past five it's a bit more it is enjoyment but no wonder you need to sleep in the afternoon yeah <laughs> now i'm a bit like right i've done it all this long i've just got to go for it it's it's something i'm passionate about and i yeah. want to share my experiences with other people as well Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So how did you feel when you when you hit the wall and you got your first... Uh, what was the discipline? What were you doing? 100 metre breaststroke. And that's your strong... Yeah, that's strong my favourite event. Breaststroke, isn't yeah. it? I always enjoyed breaststroke as well. So what, what was what was the time that you got the world record? At that time, it was a 114.41. Yeah, I say at that time, but you since... Yeah, since then since I've broken it. Improved on that. Yeah. So what was it before you hit that? 117.4, I So you believe. absolutely destroyed it. <laughs> didn't you? you a did, little you bit, don't. yeah. Come on, <laughs> be honest. 
And was the world record hold? How long had that record stood? 2012, I believe. So, so quite a while, six, yeah. six years, six, seven years. Yeah. And presumably that person who held the world record wasn't performing in the pool she doesn't swim anymore no yeah she's retired has she been in touch with you after no she was a gb (laughs) athlete as well though she was yeah right but she's retired now so but i think that's the amazing part of sport like in swimming you compete and then when you leave you want to leave your like legacy behind and Mm. she certainly did leaving a world record behind i mean that's a way to leave the sport yeah having a world record like you can't do any more than that and these records are there to be broken and yeah. that's what you that's what you seem to be doing and then you went on to repeat that feat didn't you yeah. recently you broke that record again so your second world record in the same event yeah was only recently yeah so we had um world paris women championships in london in september i mean yeah Words can't describe that feeling. This time you had your family with you. Yeah, this time I had my mum there, my auntie, my coach. And yeah, I remember getting told that I'd made the team. And it was meant to be in um, Malaysia. But because of like government and stuff, it got moved to London. And I remember thinking, oh, why am I swimming in London? Like, come on, I've just made a big thing and I'm swimming in London. And my coach sat down with me and was like, come on, this is your first big major champs you need to look at it as this is a positive you're in london you're at a home pool home crowd pool you know about i was like oh okay and i remember getting there and thinking this is not the pool that i remember training at i was like this is full with like seven thousand spectators and where and was athletes. the pool this is the olympic london pool. aquatic center yeah phenomenal seven thousand spectators athletes media crew i was like wow and I sat there for four days before I competed. My events were the last three days. Uh-huh. And the first race was a medley relay. So I had me, Alice Tyre, Tony Shaw and Steph Millward. And they are the best bunch of girls you could ever ask for in a relay team. And we touched and we got the world record in it. And I looked and I was like, wow, this is what these mornings are worth. This is what everything we do is for. And I was like, probably a bit selfish i was like i want to get in here myself now and do this on my own that's not selfish so that's determination yeah passion the next day i'd had my 200 individual medley and i always knew this was going to be the toughest event i'd ever competed in the world record holder jessica long was in there and she is a 13 time paralympic gold medalist so she's not a force to be reckoned with i mean she is amazing and Alice had already won golds in all the events she'd competed in and I remember finishing looking at the clock breaking the world record being everyone in the pool and just crying to myself inside and I was like why am I crying I was like this should be happy but emotions from the night before emotions from that swim just hit and I remember thinking I just want to go and see my coach I want to give him a hug and tell him thank you for never doubting me always believing me always pushing me and never treating me any different to any other athlete. And yeah, it just went from there. Then in a hundred breaststroke came. Hang on, just before we go on to the hundred breaststroke, if I'm not mistaken, because I think I watched this, uh, the, the footage of this on, uh, I found it on the internet. Is this the one where she was so far in front with a with a, yes. a lap to go? So Alice Ty, and you just blew her away with your breaststroke in the yeah. final leg. Alice Ty is incredible at everything, and um, her flying back compared to mine are absolutely exceptional i mean no athlete can compete well she was so far in front of everybody yeah, else, she was she? 10 seconds in front of me on the breaststroke and i had 100 meters to make 10 seconds up 
But I remember in the interview after, they were like, what did you think? And I was like, to be fair, I don't think about any other athlete. When I'm in that pool, it's my race. I, I said, I know she's going to be stronger than me. So on that brushstroke, I just know I've got to turn and catch up. But did you see her as you turned in that final final lap? Yeah, I can uh, see I can see her. And but did, you, did you think, I'm, I'm going to get her? Was it in your mind that you're going to get her, that you're going to overtake her? I don't really think about I'm going to overtake, I'm going to catch up. I just think, I've got this, this is my race. I can't change what she does. Mm. I said, I can't change anything she does. I can't change anything I do. I can just worry about my race plan and do my race plan mm. but then when i was catching her off on the breaststroke it was like you must have hey. been getting excited I'm, I'm gonna do this i was like oh <laughs> wow this is pretty crazy but then i know on that front crawl leg they're all gonna come back at me so yeah. i just had to hold and hope for the best yeah and yeah all the hard work and my race plans paid off so you certainly did yeah. and the look on your face at the end you look you look like in shock i was <laughs> i mean yeah, Jess Long, thirteen Paralympic gold medals. You can't, you can't really compete with someone that great. And then Alice Tyre, I mean, she's been through a lot of classifications, and I think re uh, Tokyo is definitely going to be that year at Paralympic Games when she shows the world how incredible she is. Yeah, so, but yeah. uh, don't put yourself down. I mean, you got, you got gold and a world record as well. Yeah phenomenal and it, you were just i think i mean we say just because we measure you know world records in minute sort of periods of time but you, you broke it reasonably substantially didn't you 0.7 of a second that's that's quite significant yeah. on a, a, a race over that distance yeah i mean if you say that to someone 0.7 of a second they don't really understand that in swimming that's quite a lot i mean World records get broken in swimming by 0.01 of Hundreds a second. of a second, yeah. So, yeah, to get break it by over half a second. I know, is and that pretty... level of competition yeah. is amazing. So then, okay, so you've got two now. So what was the next one? 100 Breaststroke, 100 breaststroke. my absolute favourite event. I love 100 Breaststroke. It's an event where I just feel comfortable. It's an event I like. I love training it. I wasn't always a breaststroker, though, so it's weird that I've gone from backstroke to breaststroke. But yeah, 100 breaststroke. I knew it was going to be a tough race again. But I got the world record again and a gold. But I was a little bit disappointed with myself knowing that in the medley relay I'd gone quicker in the breaststroke leg than what I did in my individual. So that's something I'm definitely going to work on. Like, And hopefully if I make Tokyo, I'm going to get that time that I did in the relay. What do you mean if you make Tokyo? Come on. I mean, When's the selection process? Um, so we'll go to Bipsims, which is British Para Swimming International Meet in uh -huh. um, Sheffield this year, my favourite pool. So yeah, if I perform well there, then I'll find out. Of course out you will. Yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll do it. If you don't perform there, you're not on the team. So that I think that's a good thing about para swimming and swimming in general, that pressure's always on to perform at the, at the meets you need to. And I think that's really important because some athletes can get lazy and think, oh, well, I'm the fastest at the moment. If someone doesn't beat me, then I'm going. No, you need to be able to perform at every level. So, mm -hmm. so what was the other other one? Four by one hundred freestyle relay, last event of the whole championships, last event, and the timing system failed. <sighs> so we touched first, like we'd seen, we touched first, but our time didn't come up. And in swimming, that can mean one of two things: the timing system's failed, or you're disqualified. Well, because you haven't touched on properly. Because um, you've done a full start. like So overtaking, someone moved early before the person right. had touched the wall. Right. And I remember Alice being in the water going, oh, 
no. She was like, I did a quick takeover. She was like, please don't tell me we're disqualified. And I was like, no, Alice, it was a safe takeover. You, you're fine. She was like, it's not come up. I was like, we've done it. I know we've done it, but we need to just like hope for the best. And it felt like we waited a lifetime for that school board to show we'd won. And yeah, we we won. So it was And another record? No, no, no. No, no. no records this time. No world record. Just a regular on that. gold. Yeah, no <laughs> world record on that. Um yeah, I'm not too sure what country holds the world record for the four by one hundred freestyle relay, but it is quick. Hmm. Yeah, so if I make Tokyo and I get selected to go on that freestyle team, that's definitely something I wanna work on to try and help the girls get their time. I'm interested by what you say about having favourite pools. I mean, to to the layperson who just splashes around, what's the difference? Why why is one pool different or more superior, or you have a preference for it than another? So there's apparently such thing as a slow pool, fast pool, because of the slant. <laughs> it, sound, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, because of the slant. So Beacon Tree's a slow pool apparently because it goes from 0.9 to two meters, so it's got a big drop. Ah, so you're a bigger drag perhaps yeah. as you go through. Right. Okay. My favourite pools probably aren't because of the pool. It's probably because of the environment. So in Sheffield, I have, me and my mum have this lovely routine. We stay at this hotel and then we go to the Pound Bakery and I get a tuna roll, a cookie and a blackcurrant squash. And then I go to the fish shop next door and I get a pound's worth of money of crayfish towels. And then I go back to my hotel, eat it and then sleep. So I've got it all lined up of what I like to do before my race. So you've got this mental picture in your head and why everything feels comfortable and natural for you. There's definitely pools that I go to and I'm like, it it just doesn't have that. So it's not even the pool, it's just the imagery and the context of it all. The environment and how you can make yourself relax and comfortable. What's your worst pool you've swum in? Probably Manchester, which I probably shouldn't say because it's the home of British para swimming. But I just don't feel at ease in the environment. So I go there and I'm already quite tense. Where's strange. Sheffield, Stratford. I just I just feel so relaxed, so comfortable. That's really funny because to most people who don't know any any better, a pool is a pool is a pool. You wouldn't think, you know, yeah. once, once you're in, you've got as much chance in in Sheffield as you have in Manchester, as you have in London. Yeah. But what what am I to disagree with you? I, I, I don't know. I don't swim for a profession. But uh, that's fantastic. So you're you're training hard still, obviously, with selection yeah. coming up for Tokyo, which yeah. is next year. Yeah. When, when is it next year? Next summer. Wow. So yeah, next summer and in May we've got Europeans. So, so that will be decided in December yeah. whether I go to Europeans. Is it? Do you think it's unfair? You know, you said you had to wait four days till you had your first event and then you had them in quick succession by the sounds of it. Um, so is that is that harder or difficult? I mean, psychologically you're seeing every, all, everybody else racing and then you've got to wait. Are you still training while you're waiting? Or are you still... Yeah, so when we were there, we still had training every day. They try and keep it as normal po- as possible as if you're at home. Mm. Like Paralympics, for example, you could be there three weeks before you race. It's just the way, the luck of the draw, really. Every athlete finds it, di- like, deals with different scenarios. I mean, for me, it doesn't matter what day I race on. It's a day of the week. Mm. But then they come quickly, so then you're condensing yeah. all your energy into a s- short period of time, aren't you? And you're mental concentration but that's what we do in training that's so you train yeah for this event. we train for situations like this uh-huh. i mean every athlete should train for every situation training you train once in the morning once in the evening then you do it again the next day so it's basically replicating the training session just mm. more energy mm. 
And because you've got these selections coming up and then you've got the Europeans and the Olympics, do you go into like a training camp or is the, is the training the same day in, day out? Uh, no, so um, for Worlds Just Gone, we um, went to um, London 10 days before the competition started and we had like training camps. So like your training gets adapted to reduce your meterage and increase your speed and you might not do as many sessions. Mm. But again, every athlete's different. I mean, for example, some athletes drop their training right down. Others just reduce it slightly. So every athlete has different. Well, obviously, we wish you the very best of luck with your forthcoming uh, events that you've got coming up. We shall be looking out for you. Thank but you. what are you actually doing? Because I know you're also giving back to the community in your terms of the, you're providing lessons, you're going into schools, you're doing other work. What, t- tell us a bit about what you're up to. So I work closely with the IDDP project in Barking and Dagenham, which is International Day of Disabled People. And on a Monday, we set up a swim school and anyone from the project can come in and they have a swim session. So... We're only on our third week at the moment, like coming up to our third week, but already children that couldn't put their face in are now kicking with their face in and with a float and children that could just about kick with a float are now kicking with no float. So in a short space of time, they're already making big improvements. And it's really nice because any ability, any age can come and they just work on their own thing. So we don't compare. And I think that's a major part with disabilities. Don't compare someone with the same disability because they might not have the same ability. Mm. So you just take the individual as an individual yeah. with their own ability or disability on on face value. Yeah, they definitely. They just come in and you give them formal training or is it just to give them some confidence in the pool, first of all, if they're coming in that you know, they're scared of water, for example? Oh, yeah, we do. Like So the first week we did confidence, like we did races, like blowing spaceships to replicate blowing bubbles when <laughs> your face is in the water. Uh-huh. So, yeah, games, like watering cans, toys, like fun. And then once they're at that stage where they're confident in the water, then introduce the swimming skills towards it. That's fantastic. It. And you're seeing some good, some oh, good results. Oh, massive progress. Yeah, yeah, massive. Yeah. So you might be training some uh, world champions for the future. That would be my dream. I mean, <laughs> like to say that you've helped someone get to yeah. that stage would yeah. be pretty incredible. Yeah, you always remember the, your first mentor, don't you? And going into schools as well. So what are you doing when you're going to schools, giving talks? And- uh, yeah, so I've done quite a few schools at the moment. Um, more schools coming up. Um, just going in and explaining to them like just because you might have something different or you're not the same as everybody else never give up on your dream always try hard commitment hard work gets you there but never be afraid to ask for help but always think to yourself do I need that help before you ask for it and this is mainstream schools this yeah, is schools with the right cross section of ability and yeah. disability irrespective yeah and, and are you getting kids coming up to you who have suffered you know what you maybe suffered when you were a kid you know yes. not understanding why their body wasn't working perhaps as well as they you know being called lazy or stupid yeah. so I work with this boy and he's got cerebral palsy in his legs and his mum's like oh he can't do this he can't do that and I'm like he can he just does it a different way and she's like I really like the way that you say that he can do it he just does it a different way that mm. that word of he can not he can't she says he comes out and he goes Miss said I can do it today and that's that's really like heartwarming to know that a little thing like saying he can because he's probably never heard it before makes a big difference he's probably heard even from his parents not wishing to put him down but saying oh you know you can't do it go and do something that you can you can achieve and he doesn't want to know that he wants to know what 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 he's capable of and then his teachers may have this negative impression of him as well yeah definitely and it's lovely that someone like you can come along who's achieved so much and 
you know, you're still a young lady oh, in, a, in a relatively short space of time. Uh, it, it's a phenomenal. You're, you're a wonderful role model to these to these kids and and to us ad, adults as well. Thank it's you. A, it's a pleasure. No, don't, don't thank me. You know, you're doing phenomenal stuff. So, what have you got coming up then? I mean, it's just more training, getting your head down, working hard for. What do you call it? The selection. Yeah, selection policy. The selection, policy. selection policies for um, Europeans are out now, but obviously, don't we don't know until after nationals in December. So, just training hard, working. Staying positive, staying injury-free is a massive thing. And just, yeah, enjoying life. I think you've got to have enjoy life. As soon as swimming becomes life, then there's no point doing it. So what do you do outside of swimming? That, that's uh, fun. I socialise a lot. Like, yeah. um, my friends come round and we do, like, face masks and pamper. And um, this Saturday, actually, I've got British Swimming Awards. So a nice dinner and dance will be quite exciting. You're doing what? A uh, dinner and dance at <laughs> British... Dinners. Oh, like a black tie thing? Yeah, at British Swimming Awards. So I'm quite excited about that. But yeah, definitely like meeting up with people, just going for like afternoon tea or coffee, pamper days. Yeah, you've got to have that outlook that's not swimming because hmm. swimming's not always going to be there. And I think that's the most important thing. So what do you think after your swimming career? I mean, you're still on the young threshold of it. What do you think when you've finished your swimming career? Do you think you'll go into training and... Uh, mentoring other other kids oh yeah definitely um so, so at the moment i swim teach but i want to make it a bigger thing and mainly work with children with additional needs and like disabilities so yeah that would be a main goal of mine well it's been an absolute treat and a ple pleasure to have met you thank, thank you, you so much for your time as i know you're pushed for time and we're stuck in this little office in the <laughs> just next to the pool so um, I've never had an interview in a little office next to a swimming pool. It's very warm in here, I must say, as well. And, we, and I have to apologise to the listeners. We've got some music blaring out, so hopefully you, you won't get uh, drowned out too much with that. But once again, thank you so much, Brock. It's been an absolute thank pleasure you. to have you on the show. Thank you. So we're at that point of the, uh, the conversation with the guests when I ask them to tell us of a place that is particularly... Uh, that they particularly like it could be a walk a pub a restaurant something something could be in your case it could be a swimming pool i don't know but what is what is your favorite place in and around london that you love people to know about i have two favorite places Good. i love the science museum i mean i remember going to a school trip there and then dragging my parents along um, i just think it's amazing to learn about new things uh it's free you just have to make a donation which is amazing uh -huh. i mean yeah anyone any age can go there it's really accessible which is really good i haven't so. been for donkey's years oh, it's for amazing. many many years but I, I must get myself along there i love it yeah and wonderful what's the other one covent garden ah now you're talking covent garden um every time we go up london we have to pit stop there there is a sweet shop and it does the tastiest fudge ever. <laughs> um, so yeah, Not part of your um, health health routine, no, I would have thought. You've no. got to treat yourself. But I treat myself to fudge. But yeah, Covent Garden has the best sweet shop in the indoor market with the best fudge. So if you're going to go, go there. That's fantastic. Well, we had a lady on the show uh, several months ago called Janine Saba. So big shout out to Janine, who is the editor, founding editor of a magazine called The Covent Gardener. Oh, wow. So it's the magazine for all the people in the area, all the businesses and all the, all the tourists and everyone. So check out The Covent Gardener if you like Covent Garden. Oh, wow. And you can subscribe to that for a, for a few. You can get it online or you can get the hard copy. So it's a wonderful magazine. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I will. Co <laughs> Covent Garden. Wonderful. It's two fantastic places, two very different and uh, we shall add them to our ever-growing list. Thank so you. once again, Brock, thank you so much. It's been an absolute treat. Thank you for having me.
Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.